Superchargers, headlights, and more. With over 122 million parts, eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Stay on your A-game with all the parts you need at the prices you want. It's easy to bring home huge wins. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. See ebaymotors.com. Hey, hey, it's Conrad Thompson, and you're listening to 83 Weeks with Eric Bischoff. Eric, what's going on, man? How are you? I'm doing very well. It's great to hear your voice again. I'm coming to you from beautiful downtown Stamford, Connecticut, about ready to go out, explore the city, and have, have a great day. So uh, you're settling in. Did you, uh, you try any new uh, fun restaurants in Stamford? We uh, called up last week and said that you guys were uh, going to be moving from one apartment to another and you hadn't really gotten settled in. So you're eating out every night. Anything new you can t- tell us about uh, living in Stamford? Well, you know, as I said, I think last week, you know, you, when you, you move from a place like Cody, Wyoming, where it's beautiful and, you know, we sit out on the back deck and look at the deer and the antelope play as you're looking up into Yellowstone National Park and the mountains. It's just absolutely glorious in many respects. And then, of course, moving to Stanford, Connecticut, you're giving up all of that. But, but I say, you gain a lot. Believe me, you gain a lot. And one of the things we gained was the accessibility of some amazing restaurants. So while, yeah, we did get settled in, we switched over apartments, and uh, that didn't take too long. And we're still eating out every night, not because we have to, but because we just are compelled to. The food here is amazing. Love it. Well, we are compelled to circle back and talk about last week's episode. I got really good feedback from last week. I thought it was a fun show. What did you hear about last week's 83 weeks? I did too. You know, initially, uh, initially I was a little tentative about doing a watch along, um, not because of the subject matter necessarily, but because, uh, you know, I've, I've gotten different, you know, reactions to watch alongs. And oftentimes when we do a watch along and we're describing action of people that are listening, don't get a chance to, for whatever reason, watch along, whether they're driving to work or they're listening on their way to, to, you know, on a train or a bus or a plane or whatever, you know, they don't have the advantage of, of watching what we're talking about. But I think we did a good job of telling the story, um, in, in allowing people who weren't able to watch along on the WWE network still enjoy uh, the event as we described it. So all of the feedback that I got was was very positive as well. So there you go. Check out the Invasion episode in the archives if you haven't already. Today, it's all about Scott Steiner. And of course, he called himself the genetic freak. Since we're talking about the genetic freak, the big booty daddy, Scott Steiner, He is uh, one of the rare wrestlers that's had a lot of success in both tag team competition and singles competition long before he was the big booty daddy. He's part of one of the more famous or infamous as it were tag teams in professional wrestling history, the Steiner brothers, and they did it all, you know, the U S tag champs, the world tag champs. Um, in fact, I mean, I guess Scott held it all, you know, TV title and world championship. But when you first come to know Scott Steiner, He's a tag team competitor. What, what, what year would you think that would have been? Uh, it was, you know, I was thinking about that, knowing we were going to do this show. And I think the first time I'm really crossed paths with Scott, obviously when I first came to WCW, I think in 1992, 
I believe I started in the summer of 1992, and I think there was an event, at least the one that I recall that stands up my mind, was in Chattanooga, Tennessee. I don't remember. It was a pay-per-view event, and I don't remember which one. It could have been a fall brawl. It would have been about the right time. Uh, and I, I was – the guys were dressing in what was really a – it was either a wrestling training room or – uh, part of the g- gymnastics training room, whatever. It was a big open area, not a traditional locker room area. And all the talent was there getting dressed. And I, I of course, was doing interviews. So I would have to run back and find talent and, you know, take them over to the interview area and things like that. And again, I'm, you know, I'm still new on the job, trying to get used to everybody's names and faces. There's a lot of talent there that I wasn't familiar with. And, and still, you know, kind of, walking and talking very carefully is the is the new guy and not only the new guy the new guy who is the c squad backup to the backup to the backup announcer so i go into this room and this big room where the guys are dressing and i see both steiners rick and scott have a referee and for the life of me i'm not sure who it was i want to say it was nick patrick but i could be wrong but anyway they had this referee and they had him duct taped up like a mummy. They had duct tape around his mouth. His hands were duct taped to his, his, the size of his hips and his legs. His feet were duct taped together. And he was buck-ass naked and had a pencil stuck up his ass. And I thought, wow, this is, this, this is going to be a hell of a gig. <laughs> That's my first recall of the Steiner brothers. And I'm sure the referee, whoever it was, whether it was Nick Patrick or whomever, you know, must've done something that the Steiners found worthy of some sort of Steiner retribution, but they tortured him. It was all, I want to say in good fun for those who were <laughs> watching. <laughs> oh my God. We're taping dudes and shoving shit up their ass. And it's all in good fun. I love it. Well, yeah, who knows what he did to deserve such a response. I'm not sure. I didn't see it. I just saw the aftermath and I thought, man, I'm going to be really careful around these two guys. Well, I mean, I guess I have to ask here. Did, did you ever feel the wrath uh, of a pencil? No, no. After see, look, you know, when you, when you're brand new on the job and you witness something like that, it kind of sets the tone. You, you recognize right off the bat, these are two guys and I'm, I'm not, first of all, I don't rib people anyway. I try to treat people with respect. And I certainly did back then as, as the new young guy. Um, but I, I made, you know, I made a mental note not, not to do anything that these guys might find offensive because I surely didn't want to be in the receiving end of that. Years ago on uh, one of the early Ric Flair podcasts, he's telling a story about how the Steiners would just really be kind of brutal to Butch Reed, uh, Ron Simmons, tag team partner in the tag team doom. And so he asked Ron one day, Ron, why don't these, why don't the Steiner brothers ever give you shit? They're always picking on Ron and never you. Why don't, how did you get a free pass? Why don't they fuck with you? And supposedly Ron Simmons just deadpan delivers. I'm unfuckwithable. And I, <laughs> <laughs> I just thought that was the best line ever. Um, you know, what other sort of, uh, memories do you have? Because you're not, you're not there too terribly long before the Steiner brothers decide, you know what, uh, maybe the grass is greener on the other side. And 
I think they shocked a lot of people when they went to work for Vince McMahon and left WCW. Yeah, I mean, my my memories. I, you're right. I they they weren't there that long before they left uh, to WWF, uh, WWF at the time. You know, my interactions with them were fairly limited. Uh, almost immediately, I hit it off uh, probably more with Rick than with Scott. Uh, Rick Rick was a little more outgoing. Uh, liked to laugh and joke around a little bit, and was uh, uh, just generally more approachable. And we had a lot more in common. You know, Rick loved to hunt and, and, and fish, and we knew a lot of the same people. Uh, Rick and Scott both knew Brad Ringens pretty well and a lot of the guys from Minnesota. So we had kind of a common bond in that regard. Uh, and we're just able to, you know, talk socially, non-wrestling type of conversations much more easily than, than Scott and I did. So I, of the two, I got to know uh, Rick, you know, better right off, right off the bat. But, yeah, they did uh, – while I believe Watts was in charge, uh, they decided to move on to the WWF, as a lot of people did. There were a lot of people that you know didn't like working with Bill Watts. And I, I do recall Scott being the most animated of the two with regard to, to Bill. He just, they did not get along at all. Well, and it's weird because he winds up, you know, finding himself in the WWF, you know, and, and Bill Watts wanders into the WWF as well. Um, I think one of the things that Scott took issue with is, as I think Bill saw Scott as a singles performer. And, uh, I think he's even spoken about the fact that he thought Scott would have been a great heel and he wanted to try to, you know, make him a single star. And so there is a, a bit of an attempt to try that. You would see him in some singles matches, even against uh, a guy like Ric Flair, how hesitant in the early nineties, uh, were the Steiner brothers to, to sort of split up. It does feel like a natural story arc. You know, we saw it with so many other tag teams, even through WCW, you know, doom. We just listed, for example, Ron Simmons would, you know, go on to great single success, becoming the first black heavyweight champion for WCW. But what was the hesitation or did you have a conversation with the Steiners about their hesitation to be a singles team? You know, the subject came up, uh, throughout their their time there and we did talk about it off and on and never anything really seriously it's not like i uh was a part of any discussions where it was you know serious seriously proposed and we felt you know strongly that it had to be done or anything like that but you oftentimes you, you talk in a general way about hey what if we do this or what if we do that and i you know i never got the sense in any conversation that they were like adamant about not doing it and, you know, firmly rooted in their, their tag team. But I do believe it was my sense again, that they were really comfortable with who they were as a tag team. They had been a tag team for very long. I don't think any of them were interested in necessarily splitting it up just to try it and see what would happen. I think the feeling at least that I got was that, okay, well, if we're going to do this, where does it go? What's the idea? And I'm, I'm, you know, I don't know if paraphrasing is the right way to say it, but uh, reading into my impressions at the time, it was like, okay, well, what next? Where does it go? What do we do? And I think there was a a tendency to be wary of things like that. And again, you know, you go back and you look at WCW and, and at that time and even afterwards, even under, you know, my direction, 
oftentimes big decisions like that were made and nobody really thought it thought about it you know down the road what happens three months from now what happens six months from now it's easy to make a creative decision that feels like oh this is great you know it's a that holy crap moment you know oh this is huge and get everybody excited about it but if you don't have a plan going down the road it has a tendency just to fizzle out after the initial holy shit moment and I think everybody was pretty sensitive to that as they should have been. I guess we should briefly mention here. And I think most people who are listening to this remember, you know, the Steiner brothers, um, you know, university of Michigan jackets on their way to the ring. Of course, that's uh, a real life situation. Uh, they're both very accomplished amateur wrestlers and, and then wrestled for Michigan. Uh, and I think it's sort of fascinating to look back and realize that Scott Steiner was wrestling and competing at the 190 pound weight class. Of course, we know, uh, later in WCW, he's going to be as big as a house. He's a, a three-time big 10 runner up in 86. He was a division one, all American, uh, after college, he decides to, uh, take a stab at professional wrestling. He's trained by Dr. Jerry Graham. Uh, and then before you know it is with the CWA in 88 and then gets the big break in 89. And that's probably when most of us became familiar with him. I think a lot of people though, uh, probably had Rick pegged to be the big star of the pair rather than Scott. He certainly had the bigger push first with a run with the television title, you know, barring what had happened before you were in power. Did you see one over the other as, as being a potential breakout single star? Wow. You know, I got to kind of go back and, and recall my frame of mind at that time. I, I obviously Scott, as we all know, based on history ended up being more of a breakout single star than Rick did. So, um, I guess it would be easy for me to make myself sound really smart and, and like a visionary and say, Oh, I knew all along it would, would have been Scott, but you know, going back to 92, 93, and I'm not sure when they came back, probably 95 or 96, I didn't really look at them individually. You know, I, I really did look at them as a tag team. Um, they had a lot of value to WCW. And one of the reasons I was excited about getting them back, aside from the fact that I just liked them, um, on a personal level and professionally, I had a lot of respect for them and what they could deliver in the ring, but the value that I saw in them from a business perspective, uh, was their value over in Japan and in Japan, they had a lot of value as a tag team. So I didn't really look at them at that time, um, as one being a potential breakout single star over the other. I really did. You know, from a valuation perspective, I looked at them as a team, again, because of their value in Japan. And that was an important piece of business for us in Japan. Let's talk a little bit about them coming back. You know, you mentioned, you know, when they came back, I think, um, I think they leave in like April or May of 94 and they're just sort of out of the limelight for a little while. They pop up for a brief stint in ECW in 95. But they don't return to WCW until 96. What's up with that? Was there heat with the way they left? Or, I mean, it does feel like, especially in that Nitro era, you know, when, when 
Lex Luger's contract is up in the WWF and he's right to WCW, but that wasn't the case with the Steiners. Were they trying to, you know, try their hand somewhere else where they're difficult to deal with? What was the reason or rationale for them not signing right away? Again, I was, you know, knowing we were going to do this episode on Scott, uh, and this, I knew the subject would come up. I, I really trying to remember the, the particulars in terms of them leaving and there was a delay in them coming back. And I do recall there was some, I don't want to say tension when it would not be the right way to say it, but there was some, um, it, it was awkward the, 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 the timing about bringing them back and whether or not we would bring them back. I believe there was some, yeah, there was some awkwardness associated with it. And I'm not sure if it had to do let me, let me say it this way. I had no issue with it. I was excited to bring him back. And I remember the, you know, uh, I can't remember who I tell you. I'm sure it would have been Rick because I had more of a relationship with Rick. But w- we met and talked about them coming back. And I was, you know, I was very excited about it. But there was, there were issues. And I'm guessing they would have been contractual legal issues. So there might have been something about when they left and how they left that didn't necessarily land on my desk because I wasn't involved in it, the, the legal side of things. Uh, but it certainly didn't affect my perspective on them. And I, w- I was excited about them coming back. And I think there was they were a little apprehensive because they didn't know how I felt about them. And they, I didn't get a chance to really know them on a personal level. We didn't interact much from a business perspective while they were there. So I think they just weren't sure of me and how I felt about them. But the minute we, we talked, I believe we met at a restaurant on a Saturday, you know, it was you know kind of a uh, off 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 schedule kind of thing. We met, and it was I was excited about them coming back, and and putting the deal together was pretty easy. So, uh, but there was an issue. I just don't, unfortunately, I don't remember what it was because I don't think it had anything to do with me. It might have had to do with corporate and legal. So they pop back up on the uh, March eleventh Nitro. This is nineteen ninety six. They're uh, going to make a surprise return. And of course, the first thing we're going to have them do uh, upon their return is lose uh, to the road warriors. <laughs> See, I get the inference there. So you bring these guys back to this great tag team. And the first thing you do is have them lose. I, I get it. I don't know. I didn't say that. I just, you know, what was the creative there? Hey, we got these guys back. It's awesome. Let's have the road warriors go beat the shit out of them. They didn't beat the shit out of them. It's two <laughs> different things. <laughs> You know, and, and oftentimes people who, and look, I'm not saying it was, the, I'm not trying to justify the decision. Okay. I, I don't want to infer that, but I do note when people feel like, well, you know, you're bringing these guys back. They should have beat the road warriors. Well, the road warriors are pretty, you know, they were still a pretty viable deal. There was still equity in those characters. They, they were still an important piece of business for us in Japan. Um, so Sometimes people who are on the outside of the business, even knowledgeable ones who are analyzing things going on inside of the business, sometimes put more weight on winning and losing than how people win and lose. Or if losing is setting up a storyline or a program. And I'm not, again, I'm not defending or suggesting it was, but I do know oftentimes it's, you know, I can't believe they beat this guy. Well, in the context of the story, maybe that makes sense. So I just encourage people to think about it a little bit more than you might, you know, in terms of the 
connotation in the context that you might read online, for example. Well, how about this? You're exactly right. Uh, on April 29th, there's a match at the Tokyo Dome. You guys are doing a joint show with New Japan. Uh, it's called the 96 Battle Formation. The Road Warriors are going to return to Japan after a long absence. Here, they'll be teaming with the Power Warrior, which is Kensuke Sasaki doing the Hellraiser gimmick. And that six-man team will take on Rick and Scott Steiner and Scott Norton, uh, and they're going to go like 15 minutes and change. But a huge pop for Road Warrior Animal, who had been missing for a while. Of course, I think a lot of people know that he had a, a Lloyd's of London claim and had a long layoff. Uh, so one of the trips that Hawk made over there, he had a different tag team partner, Rock, in the shoulder pads. Uh, Animal wasn't there. But here... Uh, it is a big return. So it makes total sense. And on our way to get here, uh, you had them work a, uh, them being the Steiner brothers pronouns, pal work a, uh, a dark match with the nasty boys and uncensored. So they're back and plugged in, but it certainly feels like, you know, we had eyes on a rematch with the Tokyo dome. Mm, that makes total sense why they would have debuted the way they did on nitro. Uh, Slamboree that year was a bit of an interesting concept in Baton Rouge. It's a lethal lottery. Random drawings are going to take place. It hasn't been done since 1993. The reason I bring it up here, though, is we see Steiner versus Steiner. Rick Steiner's tag team partner here is not going to be Scott Steiner. It's the fucking booty man. And he's going to take on Scott Steiner and Craig Pittman. And uh, Rick is going to pin Pittman with a German suplex. So... Rick and booty man get the win. It is sort of interesting that this is the first time we see Steiner versus Steiner. And of course you had to make sure booty man was involved. How fucked up was that? (laughs) (laughs) God. Oh, as I'm hearing the words coming out of your mouth through my headsets and they start sinking into the frontal lobe of my brain, I'm feeling myself getting nauseous. The booty man and Rick Steiner. Oh, my God. What was I thinking? You know, everything that was, that was Kevin Sullivan. <laughs> I, love, I, I love that. Oh, by the way, I had nothing to do with that. Uh, the May 27th nitro, we know everything changes. Scott Hall debuts. The NWO was about to become a thing and take the wrestling world by storm. Interesting to note though, that that night Scott Steiner would wrestle sting to a no contest, uh, when, uh, stings partner Lex Luger. And of course, Rick Steiner would interfere. Let's fast forward a few weeks. Kevin Nash is going to debut on nitro. And on that episode, Scott wrestled Booker T in singles action, which we've covered recently here on the show. And. That gets us to the great American bash where you, uh, took a spill at the hands of Kevin Nash on that show though. The Steiner brothers would beat ice train and Scott Norton in 10 and a half minutes. Uh, chat me up. What's your favorite ice train match? Any one of them. He was such an amazing athlete. uh, Come on, man. Look, he wasn't around for a long time. He was an attraction, uh, built like, I mean, he, he was built like a building and a super nice guy. Was he one of the more talented people, you know, inside of the ring? Probably not. But was he worth trying to push and establish as a character? Absolutely. I would do it again. Did he have any outstanding, memorable matches that I would remember off the top of my head 20 some odd years later? No, no. But that's not to disparage him. 
The rest of the summer of 96 was all about the Steiner brothers and Harlem heat. Uh, they're at the bash at the beach in 96. Um, they're going to have a title switch on July 24th in Cincinnati, where the Steiners win the tag titles from Harlem heat on a house show, but lose them back three days later on a house show in Dayton. And the switches are never acknowledged on TV. And then that sets up the uh, tag title match at hog wild where Harlem heat would retain the belts over the Steiners. And we've talked about this one a little bit before, um, clash of the champions a few days later, August 15th, it's a triangle match, the Steiner brothers sting and Lex Luger and Harlem heat. What was it about the Harlem heat Steiner duo that WCW loved so much? I mean, I'll admit as a fan, they were great matches. Uh, it's two big, badass brother teams makes a lot of sense to me. When did you guys know, Hey man, this is good shit. Let's just keep doing that from the get go. I mean, just, I mean, just close your eyes. Pretend you know nothing about the teams, uh, other than the fact that they're brothers and let's forget, let's pretend you, you came from another planet. You didn't even know that if you just look at the chemistry that they had in the ring, you know, Booker had the ability. Now, Stevie was a bigger, more powerful, kind of devastating power move kind of guy. Booker, though, he was a very fluid, very agile um, kind of guy that could pair up with the, the, the ring style, of, if you will, of a Rick Steiner. You know, if we were to get into a sequence in a match where that was more of a technical type, type of a, a presentation, Booker could go. Booker could keep up with, with Rick Steiner. Or Scott, from a technical point of view. So the chemistry there, the 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 from a physicality point of view and a storytelling point of view within the the body of a match, you know, the chemistry was was great there. Uh, they could they could push each other and keep up with each other very very well. Um, with Scott, who is more, you know, both Scott and Rick had the ability to 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 deliver those devastating kind of big big man strong man power moves, but Stevie. Uh, matched up really well against either one of them, if that's the direction and the context of the match. So I think just the physical compatibility and work style of, of that, those two teams, and again, Stevie's size, obviously Scott Steiner's size by 1996, it, it just paired up from a chemistry perspective and a visual perspective. It paired up very, very well. Well, not too long after this match, I think sometime in uh, earlier mid September, Scott is going to be out of action with bulging discs in his back. He's going to require surgery there and he'll be out of the ring until January back surgery is sort of a tricky thing where anybody I know who's had a back surgery usually doesn't have a back surgery. It leads to multiple back surgeries. And when you're a big jacked up dude, carrying around as much weight as Scott Steiner is. And obviously as active as he is in the ring, is there a concern on an injury like this that, uh, Scott may not be the same. Of course, of course it was. And I, you know, I have to admit I had not had, I had not had to deal with those issues, back issues, neck issues, uh, as much as I did in subsequent years. So I wasn't as aware of the implications of them. You know, I, I, I guess having never gone through it myself and again, having not had to deal with a lot of my talent, having those types of issues at that time, uh, I, I, I was naive. It was kind of like, oh, you go to the doctor and get some surgery and get that fixed. 
you know, like it's arthroscopic knee surgery or something. Obviously, I know better now. Uh, clearly, having, you know, as, as close as I am with Hulk Hogan and the fact that I think he's had 17 at this point back surgeries probably over the last 10 years. Uh, I, I'm much more familiar with the implications of back surgery now than I was then. But of course, it's back surgery. And, you know, anytime you, I, I knew even back then, anytime that you start opening up someone's back and, and you're dealing with the spine, you've got issues. You know, my own father, uh, as a young kid, I remember watching um, my mother pulling out of the driveway when we lived in Detroit. And this is kind of off topic, but um, just to put it in context, I remember watching my mom driving, pulling out of the driveway, taking my dad to the hospital because he was born with a hole in the top. He was born prematurely and he had a hole in the top of his spine uh, that was filling up, was filling up with slowly over years with cerebral fluid, which was putting pressure on the spinal cord. Long story short, he had to go in and have surgery. And when he did, he came out paralyzed uh, in his hands and arms. So um, I was certainly aware of it, but believed that, you know, technology, surgery, everything had progressed to the point where, you know, I was hopeful that it wasn't going to be career ending uh, or, or limiting. And I think Scott believed it as well, or at least he pretended he did. And he wasn't selling it. So I wasn't as concerned about it as I probably should have been. When he comes back. Uh, Meltzer would say he looks to be close to 300 pounds and he's got uh, some different gear on specifically. He's added a weightlifting belt, which Meltzer is sort of theorizing is trying to give his back any sort of extra added support. And he would note on his clash of the champions return in his report, he didn't take any bumps or show anything requiring agility. So perhaps there was a little bit of, of hesitation from Scott. And I think it's probably fair after a back surgery to be a little trepidatious. Did you guys think that you rushed his return or was he adamant to the best of your recollection that he wanted to get back in there? You you know, Scott is one of the toughest people that I know mentally and physically. And, uh, he, he, you know, you talk about guys, no selling injuries. That was, that was Scott. I think Scott, whether we rushed it or, or not, I think Scott was probably a part of that decision. Scott, Scott loved to work. He still does to this day. And look at, look at everything that he's been through, you know, physically. And yeah, he, I think he still would want to work. He, he's got an amazing work ethic. I think he's, he's probably more comfortable inside of the ring than he is outside of the ring. And so if we pushed him too soon, which is, I, I'll, I'll, I'll accept that as a possibility for sure. Um, it, it wasn't, we, we weren't doing it solo. We had a lot of support from Scott himself. Let's keep it moving here because I think a lot of people, uh, remember, you know, that, that he's still going to have quite a run as a tag team. And now his dance partners, uh, can vary a little bit because the outsiders are here. So the sold out pay-per-view uh, which we've covered before, uh, we've got the Steiners taking on Hall and Nash for the tag titles and they win the match. Uh, it's two and a quarter stars. It is the NWO pay-per-view though. What do you remember about, uh, the Steiners and Hall and Nash and just the way they sort of gelled? And I mean, did they just get along straight from the start or, uh, was there a feeling out process with those teams? 
Uh, I think they got along pretty well from the get-go. Kevin especially had a lot of respect and had a good relationship with both Rick and Scott, probably Rick more than Scott. Again, Scott was just – not that people didn't get along with him, but Scott was just more – he was a loner. He was very quiet. You know, he messed around. He had fun in the locker room from time to time. But for the most part, when you would see Scott, you know, backstage in the locker room, whatever, he was, you know, he was all business. And and Rick was more of the social animal of the two. And I think Scott, or excuse me, Rick and Kevin in particular had a, a ton of respect for each other and a good solid, you know, per, personal relationship as well as a working relationship. So that that the chemistry with those two teams was uh, never an issue. So the next night after they've won the tag titles, this is when you order Randy Anderson uh, to return the tag titles because he ran into the ring and made the count the night before it sold out and he shouldn't have. How dare he? How dare he? The, the audacity of the late Randy Anderson. I don't know what got into him to just take it upon himself to run into the ring, make a count without discussing it with me or with anybody else. I mean, I just, you know, to this day, he deserved to get fired. And he did. And, uh, it was a a pretty memorable angle. And I think the most memorable angle with the whole Steiner, uh, outsider situation happened on the February 17th nitro, where we see a video of Hall and Nash in a car tailing the Steiners and then they run them off the road and the Steiner car flips. Uh, this is a pretty memorable angle. What do you remember about this? What can you tell us about it? It is very controversial. By the way, it was really well done. I encourage people to go to the WWE network. If you haven't subscribed yet, do it now. A lot of great content there. Do I sound like I'm shilling or what? I mean, goddamn, you've just totally sold out here on the show. Damn, I just sold out, but you know, that's not really true because I've been I've been extolling the virtues of WWE Network for a long time now. Because there really is, all kidding aside or shilling aside, there really is so much great uh, uh, iconic content there. Not only WCW and Nitro stuff that I had my finger fingerprints on but just a lot of stuff from different you know regional promotions and i encourage people to go back and look at it but um if you do go back and and look for this particular uh piece of storytelling i thought it was really well done you know kevin and i saw each other i don't know when it was recently and we were actually joking about it because it was so well done and because it was so well done and it was so believable and just outside of the box you know, people talk about that all the time. They want to see things that are outside of the box. But the minute you do something that's outside of the box and, and unusual for wrestling, it creates all kinds of shit. You know, I mean, and this one did. People thought, oh, my God, that's attempted murder. You're, 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 these people, it was physical. These are trying to kill people now to advance a storyline. Well, I'm sorry. You know, when I watch, you know, I'll pick pick any show you know you want, but I'm I'm going to go right now to Sons of Anarchy simply because I have a a call later on today with someone that was associated with that show, and almost any serious drama has got people trying to kill each other or whatever. Um, but man, the minute you do something outside of the confines of a ring or an arena that ha- especially if it feels real people people get bent out of shape and they certainly did over that angle i got a lot of heat for that internally 
you know, from PR and, and legal and all, all kinds of executives that typically didn't watch wrestling were getting phone calls and, you know, I don't know if they were getting email at the time or not, but there was certainly a lot of communication from the audience and, 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 and people who were upset with that angle because it felt like it was real. We need to give everybody a reminder that Eric is uh, just now getting settled into his new space there in Stanford. So if you hear his audio cutting out a little bit here or there, we are working on improving his internet and uh, it'll continue to get better. But we're committed to bringing you new content every single week. And you guys weren't that committed to this crash angle. It only airs on television once. Uh, it never airs again because uh, allegedly you, you did upset quite a few people. There's complaints from all over the place. And you barely were even able to acknowledge it on television because it was so controversial. Uh, if, if that hadn't have happened, do you, I mean, is it fair to say that, that we would have continued to have seen more sort of edgy angles and stories and skits like that in the future? Oh, hell yeah. Hell yeah. I mean, look, it's, it's storytelling. It's scripted television. It's, I have never been able to understand I mean, I do from a business point of view to a degree, but isn't it odd that the world knows that sports entertainment as we know it today is scripted entertainment that falls into, should fall, I dare say, into the same category as any other form of scripted entertainment. But yet within the the context of sports entertainment, there are so many things that are off limits that you can't do. And I mean, I get it. Those are the parameters. Those are the lanes we have to drive in. I'll drive as best I can within those lanes or enjoy the product. Even if I'm not involved in it, enjoy the product as best I can within those lanes. But I've never really understood why, why is it that we can watch a sitcom that can step way over the lines in, in my own opinion, you know, and I have sometimes, you know, the mouth of a sailor, <laughs> but I I'll watch a sitcom that is constantly pushing the envelope or envelope. If you choose in, in terms of you know, being provocative or distasteful, but man, within the confines of sports entertainment, you can't do that. Or as I said, we watch a drama, you know, in, in prime time on network television that really pushes the envelope, whether it comes to violence or the use of you know, weapons or you, know, you name it. And that's okay. But within the context of sports entertainment, oh, no, that's a no-fly zone there. And so it's just interesting how sports entertainment is its own unique little category where you know you have to be very careful about what you do outside of the confines of the ring or the arena i don't know it's it's too bad because it would open up storytelling in a fascinating way if that were you know were not the case but it but it is it's just the world we live in next up is the uncensored pay-per-view which had team nwo beat team piper and team wcw uh, it is quite the mess of a show you should hear all about it in our archives which we've covered uh, the next night on Nitro, the main event is Steiners versus Harlem Heat. It goes to uh, a no contest when the entire NWO attacks both teams. And this is the closing angle on the show. And, uh, of course, Sting comes down from the rafters and points his bat at Hulk Hogan. Uh, classic WCW stuff here in 1997. 
Spring Stampede was supposed to have the Steiners taking on Hall and Nash, but Hall checked himself into rehab. So you guys uh, found yourself sort of scrambling to uh, come up with another angle. And we've recently covered uh, that show as well in the archives, Spring Stampede 97. Uh, but a few weeks later, you're at the Osaka Dome in Japan. And there's 53,000 fans here uh, for the new Japan show, Strong Style Evolution, which would see Scott Hall, Kevin Nash, and Masahiro Chono beat Rick and Scott Steiner, man, the NWO is over like Rover, even here in Japan, right? Amazingly. So, so much. So, and I know that we've touched on this story, but you know, the NWO merchandise was selling, it was hotter than any merchandise had ever sold in Japan at the time. And you know, it's funny that we bring up Osaka because Sonny Ono and I were just in Japan recently, I think back in January, February, whenever it was. And we were, I had conducted, well, while I was there, the Japanese media, you know, did a, several interviews with me and talking, you know, still to this day, talking about the strength of the NWO and how powerful it was and the merchandise sales. And while I was in the middle of doing these interviews, of course, you know, uh, um, Masa Saido's, the late Masa Saido's uh, widow, uh, Michi Saido, who's very fluent in English, uh, was translating for me. And then I, I was learning, and Sonny had mentioned it to me as well, <clears throat> just the, the numbers that I was hearing in terms of dollars that were going through um, New Japan Pro Wrestling with, with NWO merchandising was just amazing to me. But that created a problem, you know, for those who didn't hear the episode because it was um, Masawa Hattori was the liaison. He was a referee in Japan, had been with New Japan for a long, long time, but he lived in New York City. And prior to me and, and me taking over WCW, Masawa was always the, the liaison with WCW. So whether it was a merchandise deal or a talent deal or whatever, it, it got filtered from you know Brad Ringins through Masawa Hattori and then landed in Japan. And Masawa Hattori used to take a little spiff on the merchandise. I didn't know any of this, of course. It was before my time. I wasn't involved in it. There was no reason for me to know it. But Masawa Hattori was, you know, he was he was in business for himself, so to speak, and, and making a little, you know, side change. And, of course, when I took over WCW, I did things differently. I had Sonny Ono that I used as my liaison, you know, for obvious reasons. He was fluent in Japanese. He had a good relationship with uh, Masa Saito, who was my primary direct contact at New Japan. So it just made life easier for me. And when we orchestrated or put in place the NWO merchandise deal, and that deal was something like, you know, if a shirt cost us five bucks, we would sell it to... Uh, New Japan for eight bucks, and then they would sell it for forty bucks or whatever they sold it for. It was easier for me than doing a li- a traditional licensing deal because when you do a licensing deal, accounting and tracking sales is a really big issue. Um, so it was just easier for us because we didn't really have the back end in place to really do a good job of tracking things. It was from a transactional perspective. It was just easier for WCW at the time to say, "Okay, Sonny, Sonny would call up and say, okay, New Japan wants five thousand of these shirts and five thousand of these shirts and five thousand shipment for fifteen thousand dollars.' We knew what our cost was. We knew what our margin was. We just threw Sonny 
arrange to have the shirts printed up, put them on a boat, and we'd get a check in the mail for for our 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 our, our markup, if you will. We were making three dollars a shirt. We sold forty five thousand shirts. We knew exactly how much money we were making. We didn't have to go through the accounting nonsense. Well, in the process of, of setting that system up, Masawa Hattori was no longer getting a cut. And he was hot about that. Now, and again, I didn't realize it as it was happening because I didn't know the backstory. I didn't know how things used to be done. So I had no idea. It wasn't like I was cutting Hattori out of his deal intentionally. I was just completely unaware of it. But he wasn't (laughs) because he was seeing the volume of shirts going through there. On the shoulder. So going back to Osaka on this particular night, Kevin Nash and I and Sonny and a bunch of guys, a bunch of the Japanese crew, we were all out having dinner. And that was the first that I heard about Masawa being hot because, you know, he had had a couple beers and so did everybody. And I saw him and Sonny over in the corner and they were just jaw jacking each other. And I'm thinking, what in the world is going on back there? Why would Hattori be hot as Sonny? You know, and I found out later on what he was hot about, but it was it was really fascinating, you know, 20 years later to hear all this backstory. But it was because, to your point, your question, the dollar volume of NWO merchandise was going through the roof. And to this day, Masahiro Chono has a store, I believe, on the Ginza, um, I like saying the Ginza uh, shopping area in Tokyo where he still sells to this day NWO merchandise. Let's get to the Slamboree pay-per-view on May 18th in Charlotte. We got the Steiner brothers taking on Conan and Hugh Morris. Of course, the Steiners get the win there. Uh, on Nitro, we get a treat on June 2nd. It's Great Muda and Masahiro Chono taking on the Steiners. Uh, Masahiro and, uh, great Muda get the win when Stevie Ray hits Rick with a chair. And that of course sets up their match at great American bash, but it's a cool thing to see, you know, two Japanese legends like Chono and Muda on nitro. Is it not? It is. It is. And I had the good fortune of seeing both of them, both of those guys when I was in uh, Japan this several months ago, back in January, February, whenever it was, and it's great to see them. Great. Great to see them. And they added a lot. You know, the intention, the the effort was to make Nitro feel like a much bigger brand, an international brand. Uh, and and Masahiro Chono and the Great Muda certainly along with many others, you know, Jushin Thunder Liger and you know, and, and many others certainly added a lot of credibility to that initiative. But I think two of the most important characters uh, were uh, the great Muda and Masahiro Chono. Of my course. opinion, just my opinion. Harlem Heat get the win at Great American Bash over the Steiner brothers, but uh, the Steiners get a win back on the June 23rd Nitro uh, when unfortunately uh, Booker collides with Sherry and then Rick uh, hits Booker with the Bulldog off the top rope. But the following week on Nitro, Okerlund interviews the Steiners who challenge Hall and Nash, and the entire NWO comes out. And give the Steiners a contract saying it's for a tag title match. But in fact, it's a uh, contract where they're going to have a match at the pay-per-view against Muda and Chono. And if they win, then they'll meet Hall and Nash in August. So the Bash at the Beach show, it's Muda and Chono again. And the Steiners do best them. Three and a quarter stars. Really a fun attraction. Uh, I really enjoyed you know seeing Muda and Chono and WCW here. 
and uh, their pay-per-view match. They actually had some time, 11 and a half minutes. We would see Scott Steiner in singles action though, before they get around to that Hall and Nash match. Uh, Nitro is main evented on July 28th with Scott Steiner getting a win over Randy Savage by DQ. So we're at least still flirting with the idea of a singles run. In early August, the Steiners get a manager, and I've wanted to talk to you about this. Ted DiBiase comes in and is introduced as the new manager, and in his promo, he he nearly calls the tag belts the WWF tag titles, force of habit, I'm sure. Chat me up, though. Why was Ted DiBiase the guy that the Steiners needed as a manager after years of never having a manager? Oh... I think the, the the prevailing perspective, mine at that time, as much as I love them in the ring, the Steiner brothers, their interviews, while sometimes entertaining, but sometimes for the wrong reasons, because they were just clunky, they weren't they weren't fluid, they were unique. And they were character-driven type of promos. They were good at those. But in terms of telling a story, a beginning and a middle and an end, and having a range within their abilities to to tell a, you know, to cut a great promo, they were somewhat limited, in my opinion, at that time. Now, we know subsequently, I think Scott Steiner in particular, I think, went on, as we all know, to cut some classic, like, cult favorite type of promos and eventually, you know, found his stride and was able to really do some amazing stuff. But at that time they weren't there yet. You know, Rick never really, as much as I love Rick as a friend and, and appreciated him as a performer, um, his promo skills, you know, didn't rank near the top. And I thought at the time having someone like DiBiase, who was a great talker and had a history of being great on the mic would help mitigate some of those challenges. Uh, you know, in, in hindsight, not necessarily a great idea, not necessarily a great fit, but that was the reasoning behind it. Yeah, it was sort of odd, but, you know, I didn't totally hate it. I mean, I get that, you know, in the 80s, everybody had a manager, and you know, anything that sort of feels 80s-ish, I'll, I'll try on. Uh, the road wild pay-per-view Steiner brothers are finally going to beat the tag champs, Kevin Nash and Scott Hall, but it's by DQ. So the belts don't change hands. Uh, Meltzer would say that it was a pretty lame finish. And he would even say that the original plans, as far as he knew, that the Steiners were going to win the titles. He would write what exactly happened. Wasn't clear. The belief is that Hall and Nash went to Bischoff and told him that they thought there'd been too many title changes of late and it was ruining the credibility of the titles. At least that's what everyone was placing the blame on. On the the surface, they have a valid point. Bischoff agreed, which may have been the correct thing to do. The problem was, if that was the case, it needed to have been done before all the plans were made. And the fact that it was Hall and Nash who came to the conclusion at the same time that they were going to drop the titles does give the viewpoint of something of a conflict of interest. The whole idea beforehand for Hall and Nash to lose the titles was to then put them into singles programs with the Nash giant program thought to be a potential big moneymaker. So you chimed in bullshit. What really happened here? It's not a, it's not a matter of what really happened. What really happened is there was a change, but for, for, you know, what's his name to suggest 
you know, and just if, if you go back and listen to the way you read that to me or, or read it, you know, it's not really sure what happened. So he it, right off the bat, he admits he doesn't have a fucking clue what really happened. What we think happened was Holland Nash came to Bischoff and Bischoff agreed. Well, how would he know that? Was he in the room? Did he hear the conversation? You know, I'm relatively certain Holland Nash didn't call him and tell him that. We had no. He, what, what he always does is take a situation, make an assumption or two, and then build a story around it that comes off as being a fact, even though he starts the story off by saying, "Not really sure what happened, but here's what happened," and Bischoff agreed. I mean, it's just Jesus. I mean, for anybody to look at anything that this guy writes, or suggests, or presents as fact. Is just, you know, other, look, I've said this a million times. I'll say it a million more times. Yes, he can find factual information, data that anybody can find if they put in the work. There's not, it's not magic. Um, he's just found the right resources or has put together the right resources to get actual facts, whether it be ratings or ticket sales or pay-per-view buy rates or any of the, the data that is out there in the public domain. He does a great job of of uh, of curating that data and presenting it and that gives him a certain amount of credibility so that when he sits back and looks at an isolated situation that he has no real information about he wasn't even in the building he wasn't even in the city where an event took place he was sitting in a basement somewhere in san jose um but yet he can write about it as if he were sitting in the room and i find that fascinating um but hey you know if you can con people out of 12 bucks a month doing that more power to you. Since the fall brawl show, it's the Steiner brothers getting a win over Harlem heat. When Rick would pin Stevie Ray, uh, they're working a ton of house shows here with Bagwell and Norton who are calling themselves vicious and delicious. The Steiners finally win the tag titles on October 13th on nitro when they beat sixth and Scott hall in five minutes and 56 seconds. It's a simultaneous pin Rick on hall and, and Scott in six. Um, the ref's out. So Larry Zabisco counts the fall. And later in the show, Roddy Piper would announce that the decision is going to stick. What's the, uh, I mean, later when Nash comes back, he can claim that he and Hall didn't really lose the belts. I mean, is that sort of the strategy by, by having six as a substitute here? Yeah. Yeah. Look, and we were digging, you know, you're digging for story and sometimes it's just too nuanced. It sounds good on paper. And then after it's over, you go, eh, it's not really that cool. Didn't really move the needle or drive the story in the way that you wanted it to. But yeah, that was the, that was the logic. They're going to maintain their tag titles, beating the public enemy on nitro in a street fight, uh, in a singles match somewhere in here, Scott Hall would pin Scott Steiner. Uh, but of course, uh, the tag titles aren't on the line for that. The, uh, world war three show is sort of a, a forgettable match, uh, where the Steiner brothers would beat Dave Taylor and Steve Regal to retain. Uh, and then we see, um, the Steiner brothers show up on the December 15th nitro getting a win over Scott Norton and Conan. But I guess what's interesting about this is that Scott finally cut off the old, uh, the old mullet. He's had that long trademark hair for as long as we've seen him. Uh, and now it's gone. Is this a Scott decision or does someone from WCW say, Hey, we're looking for a new look and we'd like for you to try this. I think when everybody 
said, you know, Billy Ray Cyrus's song "Achy Breaky Heart" was finally over and done, and no longer in the rotation on you know country music stations. And Scott probably went, "Yeah, time to lose the mullet." But that was that was Scott's decision. We know what happened at Starcade '97. It's one of our more listened to episodes here on '83 Weeks. As a quick reminder, though, here the Steiner brothers and Ray Trailer would team up in a losing effort against Scott Norton, Vincent, and Randy Savage. Uh, you can hear Eric have a total meltdown on that show. If you'd like in the archives, uh, the next <laughs> night on nitro, the Steiners get a win over Conan and Marcus Bagwell. And that would set up the sold out pay-per-view, which is the Steiners again with Ray trailer this time, taking on Conan, Marcus Bagwell and Scott Norton, uh, not a great match. It got a dud rating, but the Steiners and Ray trailer pick up the win the next week on nitro though, the Steiners finally get a match with Kevin Nash. This time Nash's partner is buff Bagwell and the Steiners are victorious. And this is a, an interesting plot twist here because Scott starts the match and gets pounded on most of the way, but is refusing to tag in Rick, but winds up winning anyway. But Rick is still furious after the match. Uh, on the February 9th nitro, the Steiners would beat Hall and Nash for the tag titles. And again, Scott wouldn't tag, but Hall basically knocked Rick or Scott into Rick, which constituted a tag. And as Hall is about to deliver the edge, Rick, the legal man comes off the top with a bulldog for the pin, but Scott isn't happy, even though they won the tag titles, but eventually, you know, we do get a hug and here comes the big storyline, super brawl. February 22nd, Kevin Nash and Scott Hall would regain the tag titles when they beat the Steiners in four minutes and 16 seconds. And we've covered this, but this is when we see Rick running around, kneeling on the ground, like a dog. And then Scott turns on him to a huge reaction. The crowd's really, really into it. Scott also decks Ted DiBiase, uh, who's then posted by dusty Rhodes. It's a big moment. The Steiner brothers have finally broken up. Tell me about how this came, this idea, you know, was finally sold. Cause it does feel like it's been discussed for years. Why was this the right time? Um, was, was anybody reluctant about doing this? It does feel like you run the risk when you split up a tag team like this, that you might have sort of a rockers type situation. One guy goes on to be Shawn Michaels. The other guy goes on to be Marty Jannetty. And if the guys aren't really sure who's going to be who, or they just really want to take care of their brother, not just figuratively, but their actual brother. Then they don't do a split, but here the timing is right. Talk us through how this decision was made and why super brawl was the place to do it. Oh, a lot to unpack there. I love, I've been waiting to say unpack in the context of this thing. Um, but really there's a lot of information. Number one, and you know, I, I got a lot of criticism for this and probably still do to this day in, in some circles, but I've never been. When I say a fan, I'm not talking about as a viewing fan, but uh, on the inside of the business, I've never been a big supporter of tag team wrestling. And it's not because I don't enjoy watching it as a fan. It's not because I don't think there's a lot of great storytelling. It's not because it's not for any other reason other than economics. And if you think of it, break it down and you just think about it in terms of television or pay-per-view. In a, in a television environment, you know, you've got one match. You've got somewhere between six and 15 minutes on average to fill in a segment, right? And instead of having overhead or costs in terms of talent fees, 
air airfare, um, whatever else goes along with that. You know, whatever line item is associated with talent, uh, catering, <laughs> the food that they eat, whatever. I- instead of having costs associated with that six to fifteen or minute segment, whatever it is, um, for two people, you've now got those costs for four people. And oh, by the way, if you're going to do tag team wrestling on a regular basis, you've got to have more than two tag teams, which means now you've got to you've got to maintain the costs for six, eight tag teams. Ideally, I guess um, have to have to sit down and look at a grid to figure it out, you know, over a 12 month period. But now you've got double the costs. Because you've got to maintain those tag teams in a storyline, which means now you've got to put them on television. You've got to build these respective tag teams so that eventually, at some point, one or more of them will come together in a, in a television story leading to a pay-per-view and going on the road and touring and that type of thing. It just doubles your costs from a talent perspective. Again, I want to make it really, really freaking clear. It's not that I never respected or enjoyed tag team wrestling as a viewer and and as a fan. But when you're running the business of the wrestling business, you're doubling your talent costs. And that was an issue for me. Number one, we didn't have a lot of great tag teams. There wasn't like a roster full of great tag teams where you could mix and match and keep your stories fresh and, you know, do things that didn't feel redundant, you know, throughout an entire year. Again, we're producing 52 weeks of television. In some cases, you know, five hours of it in prime time every single week. In addition to, you know, what we were doing on, you know, WCW Saturday night and WCW main event on TBS and things like that. So you've got a lot of costs there and not a lot of talent pool to do it with. Point being, um, it, it was splitting them up was a, almost a matter of necessity. Even if it wasn't from a purely cost point of view, from a storytelling point of view, where where are you going with two top guys like the Steiner brothers when you don't have a, a, a deep talent roster of tag teams for them to tell stories with? So it, my point, I know I'm spending a lot of time talking about it, but I want to be sure that I'm clear. It, it, was, a, it was an economic decision more than it was anything else. And I think by 1996, 1997, it was clear that there was a much better opportunities for these guys as singles than there were for them as a tag team. That's number one. Number two, um, and as you were reading to me, you know, the setup, and I think that was about a three-week story that you just laid out where we kind of teased that Scott was all of a sudden becoming selfish. Instead of being a great tag team partner with his brother – which uh, heretofore they, he, he had always been, right? That's what made them the Steiner brothers is they, you know, they, they had the timing and the teamwork of a, of a Rolex together in the ring. All of a sudden now, from Scott's character point of view, it was all about me. I want, I want, to, be, I want to win this match. I, I want all the attention. I want all the time in the ring. It's a very self, a very basic storytelling device, but it was that's what that was. And we teased it, and then we turned up the volume on it, and then we swerved it a little bit here with Rick, you know, getting accidentally tagged in and finally getting into the ring, and that was just enough to create a tipping point for Scott's character to go, 
screw it and turn on his brother. That was some pretty good storytelling. It was only three weeks, but I think it was, as you described it, I, it was easy for me to visualize. And it was, I think, a solid story. Scott would obviously go on to become a pretty big part of the NWO. Uh, Rick was able to hold his own. Rick was the traditional WCW guy, you know, for a long time. That was, that was you know, much like Sting. And and uh, until Luger turned and joined NWO, the, you know a lot of the fans recognize you know Rick Steiner as you know red, white, and true blue WCW. No doubt about it. And uh, we're going to get a new look from Scott. Um, he's got blonde hair now. He's got the multicolored beard. It looks very uh, superstar Billy Grahamish. And uh, yeah. It's a whole new look for Scott. How long had, I mean, did Scott discuss this new look with you? How long had he had this in the works? Because when he makes this change, I mean, he's still using that look 21 years later. Yeah. You know, it's embarrassing to say at this point from a professional point of view, but that was, that was all Scott, you know, Scott didn't communicate a whole lot. I didn't really require a lot of it. Um, he, he pretty much had this idea. He knew what he wanted to do. And, you know, I knew there was going to be a change because there was a change in his character. But, you know, it's not like we sat down and discussed, you know, how he was going to dye his beard <laughs> and whether he was going to take on a little bit of a Billy superstar Billy Graham look, as you said. Uh, we, didn't, we didn't discuss it in detail. Probably should have. It's a poor reflection on me, I think, uh, to, to, to look back and realize that, wow, I didn't even, these guys were changing their looks and I didn't even really talk to them about it too much. I mean, I was aware there was going to be a change, but we didn't get into the detail of it. We should mention too, that, uh, right away he's using a new finishing maneuver. He's calling the Steiner recliner. It's a, a camel clutch type maneuver. But that's not the only thing he's doing. Um, in a singles match against Marty Jannetty, which is kind of fun on Thunder, he wins with a Frankensteiner off the top rope in a minute and a half. Uh, he got a win with the Steiner recliner over Jim Duggan as well. And that sets up the uncensored pay-per-view. So we finally got this new badass, you know, heel version of Scott Steiner with a new look and a new finish. So of course he loses to Lex Luger in under four minutes. Uh, it got a dud rating you know, I know you're going to say, oh, it's the context of the story. And, but I mean, realistically, shouldn't Scott Steiner have just mowed over somebody on this pay-per-view if we're going to sort of push him as a singles guy now, instead of losing to Lex Luger right away. Mm, I don't know. I, I mean, uh, on uh, my initial reaction is yeah, probably, but I'd have to look at the context of the pay-per-view and where more importantly, just like we talked about before with the Steiner brothers losing to the road warriors leading to a Japanese, uh, Japanese or a new Japan event that drew 52,000 people. I'd have to look at the, where was it going? You know, what were the plans going forward? If there were no plans going forward, then absolutely. He should have just traditionally, typically, you know, wrestling one Oh one for, you know, wrestling fans who want to be bookers. Sure. That would make sense. But I'd also have to look at, go back and try to figure out where we were going, you know, well, the following weeks and months. Well, where you were going here is Rick Steiner comes down to Strack Scott. That allows Luger to hit him with the forearm. Boom. There's your pin. There you uh, go. Now so, there's heat between Scott and Rick. So there's your story. 
For the next several weeks, Scott's working mostly random matches on TV. He's calling himself superstar Scott Steiner and is carrying a bodybuilding trophy to ringside with him. I mean, at this point, big Papa pump is looking as big as a house here. Um, any commentary about his physique and how it starts to change? No, other than it was obvious. I mean, what do you want me to say? Um, <laughs> you know, I, 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 uh, I don't know what I don't know. I don't, That's I, about I, the only thing I, I can say. I wasn't asking you to make some sort of accusation. I just, you know, is there a look where, where you're, you're trying to get him to achieve it? Or he tells you, Hey man, here's what I'm trying to do. Does anybody in the locker room start to say, God damn, look at this. I mean, is it discussed? I'm not, I'm not asking you to say, Oh, we needed to do this sort of testing or here's our protocol. I'm not asking for a peek behind the curtain like that, but we fans at home were like, Holy shit. Look at this guy. He's like fucking out of a comic book all of a sudden. Yeah. I, I mean, I think everybody was pretty aware of it. It's not like we didn't have eyes. We couldn't see anything, but, uh, you know, ask me no questions. I'll tell you no lies. I mean, it was, you know, from my point of view, he didn't show up on any, um, drug testing protocols that were an issue for me. Uh, I didn't administer those protocols. I wasn't in charge of that. That was nobody in WCW was, that was a Turner broadcasting initiative. So as, as long as it was no problem for me, um, I didn't ask any questions. I do. I do feel like I should, uh, I mean, uh, this wasn't the plan, the route I was planning on taking with this, but when you, when guys start to whisper in the back, because you know, listen, in wrestling, everybody's fucking burying everybody. And that's taken me a while to sort of come around and figure out on my own. Um, but when a Scott Steiner starts to get a push and he looks like this guys who maybe aren't getting a push are naturally going to jump and say, Oh, I guess if I want to get a push, I got to get on the gas. I mean, that's whether fair or not guys just look for, Oh, there's a reason he's getting a push and I'm, I'm pushing. I'm not. So for instance, when a DDP has a rise to prominence, they're not making the steroid accusation. They're saying, Oh, well, he's only successful because he's Bischoff's butt buddy or whatever the fuck. When you, when you know that that's going to be the conversation, does it change the way you handle them? I mean, you, you've been candid before where you said it actually worked against diamond Dallas page that he was my friend because I didn't want it to look that way. So when you have a guy who looks like Scott Steiner, who looks like a real life, you know, comic book hero, does that cross your mind at all? No. Okay. First of all, I mean, look, and you, you say that, you know, you, you're starting to realize that everybody buries everybody and that's just the nature of the beast. I'm, you know, you've been around it now enough with with StarCast and the different people that you deal with, and you're dealing with a lot of people now across the boards, and I understand that. But, you know, again, you've not really been in the wrestling business on a full-time basis, and sure. certainly not in the role that I was in. I'm not I'm – not, trying to sound smarter or more experienced than you. It's just different you roles. Are. No, you are. No, I'm, no, not, I'm not arguing. No, 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 no. That's, that's not my point, though. I want to make it clear. That's not my point. But in the role that I was in at this time, I'm not denying that your characterization of how life is in a locker room exists, and it did exist that way back then. I'm, I support that. I agree with that. But you also have to understand that shit didn't make its way to me. 
Nobody, none of those, especially regarding a guy like Scott Steiner. Do you think any one of those other talents or any any other talent would come to me and say, "Hey, you know, if, if the only if, I think this is what he's doing"? First of all, you don't know. You don't know what he's doing or not doing. You don't have you don't have any facts. You can have you can think things, you can believe things, but in, you don't have any facts. You know, so. But even if you did, do you think any one of those guys would have come to me and stooged it off or put themselves at risk with, with the rest of the locker room by coming to the boss and throwing out accusations that they didn't really have any proof on, especially regarding a guy like Scott Steiner? It didn't happen. What I'm saying to you is that the, the innuendo, that whatever vibe you would assume, and I think correctly assume might have been the chatter that might have been going on between a couple guys in the cars or heading down the road. Yeah, I'm sure it did exist, like it did with Diamond Dallas Page. Two, you know, two guys that, you know, weren't in the power plant, weren't working their guts out, weren't spending 24 hours a day trying to figure out a way to get themselves over. At the age of 35, doing things physically to their bodies that they probably had no right or expectation, should have had an expectation to do. Diamond Dallas Page was doing those things. But rather than doing the work, it's a lot easier to drive up and down the road and say, oh, the only reason he's getting a push is because he's Eric's friend. That's natural. That's unfortunately, that's an aspect of human nature that exists in any job or environment. People that do the work are often, you know, criticized or shunned or looked down upon by people that just refuse to put in the time and the effort. Conversely, I think there were probably a lot of people that looked at, at Scott Steiner and made all kinds of assumptions, possibly justifiably so. But do you think any of those people came to me or do you think they just chatted about it in the car as they were drinking Miller Lights and eating hot dogs going down the road? It was it was the latter. It didn't it didn't make its way to me. So I wasn't I wasn't sensitive to something that wasn't really landing on my lap. Next up is the spring stampede pay-per-view. Rick Steiner is going to be teaming with Lex Luger here, and they're going to get a win over Scott Steiner and Marcus Bagwell. Uh, they will continue to tag together after this Scott and buff. Uh, they pick up a win on nitro over public enemy the next day. Chat me up about the decision to put Scott back into a tag team, but this time not with his brother, but with Marcus, did he still have some physical limitations? Did you feel like maybe he needed, uh, a little something extra in his presentation, or was he just more comfortable as a tag wrestler? What, why does this pairing come to be? I think it was just creative convenience. I think it just happened to be a storyline. It was something that we needed at the moment. It wasn't intended to be anything long-term. It was just you know, a, a temporary creative opportunity or solution. It might've been a solution, but it, it, it was intended to be creative. I don't recall there being any kind of, you know, we didn't need camouflage. You know, we, Scott had the ability to work different styles of matches. And if, if he all of a sudden was hurting or if he had issues either temporary or otherwise, there was always a way for Scott because he, he had enough repertoire and understanding of, of, of the business, um, you could have worked around anything, uh, much like other people who get hurt. Um, but I, I do believe that was more creative convenience or opportunity than anything else. About a week later, uh, Marcus Bagwell would be seriously injured in a match on thunder. Uh, we've covered that one before and, and I'm sure we will again, but this leads to an opportunity where on the May 4th nitro. Gene is interviewing Rick Steiner and Scott Steiner comes out and says his family has been shunning him because he 
has made this decision to sort of side with the NWO and he gets upset and starts to cry and says he's willing to forget the NWO. What happened to Buff Bagwell was a wake up call. So the Steiner brothers hug. And at this point, um, Adams from the NWO attacks Rick from behind with a baseball bat. And about a week after this, Scott is back out of action with another herniated disc in his back. And while he's out, he does some work in Vancouver for Hulk Hogan's movie, assault on devil's Island. And Steiner would make the observer report by saying that since he can't train, he's dropped like 25 pounds and is down to around 250 pounds. And then on the June 29th nitro, you debuted the Eric Bischoff show and Scott Steiner's on it. What do you remember about this? Uh, well, train wreck. Well, what do you mean train wreck? Okay. My bad. I, I was, uh, struggling for a word. This wonderful moment in the history of Nitro. <laughs> oh, Conrad, you cracked me up. I, no, seriously now. And I'm not be, I'm, <laughs> yes, he's got to defend this bullshit. <laughs> Tell me why you think it was so bad. Well, because everyone changed the channel and it was the worst segment ratings wise that entire year for Monday Night Nitro. Really? Yeah. Fuck. That's <laughs> 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 oh, so good. Uh, no, listen, it was a great idea. I get why you would think it would work. I mean, I understand on the surface. And here's the thing. I think sometimes we as wrestling fans forget, God damn, you got to come up with four hours of new shit every week. That's a lot. You got thunder. You got nitro. Eventually it's going to be five hours, but Four hours of new shit every week. That's a lot. And, uh, you know, that's not even counting Saturday night and all the syndicated shows. You're going to try some stuff and sometimes it hits and sometimes it doesn't. The Eric Bischoff show maybe didn't hit. Clearly. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, you know, I thought it would. And I, I sometimes think. Things look really good on paper, and sometimes they don't. You know, I had a lot of heat at the time. Um, it was it was tangible. It was quantifiable. It was working. Um, probably had almost as much heat as anybody else as a character. Now I couldn't couldn't manifest it in the ring. You couldn't tell stories with it inside of the ring, which makes a character, whether it's a heel authority character or a heel manager even uh, makes it more challenging because there's just so much you can do with it. Uh, You're very limited with a non-wrestling character who happens to have a lot of heat. It's valuable, but you got to try to think of different ways to monetize it. And this was a way I thought we could monetize it. You know, in the history of the business, I guess. And I'm not sure that this was my thinking at the time. I may not have thought about it that much. I may have just said, sure, let's give this a shot. This could be fun. It could work. It might not a lot of, might not have been a lot of in-depth thought and analysis gone into it. Probably not at this time. Uh, but at the same time, in retrospect, you could go back and you look, you could look at different kinds, whether it be Piper's Pit or Flair for the Gold or any type of, you know, talk show type settings, some of them we still see to this day, that provide a format to launch stories from. That was really the logic behind it. 
and again, as a character, and it's weird talking about myself, but, and I'm not talking about myself as a person, I'm talking about myself as a character. As a character, I had a ton of fucking heat. And, and we thought that this might be a good way to take advantage of that, given that I couldn't take advantage of it too often inside of the ring. Fun little segment here coming up. The July 20th Nitro, Rick Steiner does an interview, challenges Scott to a match at Road Wild. Buff Bagwell comes out in the wheelchair. He's going to forgive Rick Steiner for what happened when he was injured on Thunder back in April. Rick and Bagwell are both stumbling over their words. It's a real moment. Scott Steiner comes out looking freakier than ever and hits Rick with a chair. And then Bagwell jumps out of the wheelchair, looking all unsteady, trying to stop Scott. And then immediately turns on Rick and jumps around like he's fine. Takes his shirt off and reveals the NWO t-shirt. This is a a fun moment here because uh, up until this point, and even on our, our episode where we recently watched Nitro where Goldberg beat Hulk Hogan at the Georgia Dome, you wheel out Buff Bagwell with his mom. And it's a real cool moment where wrestling fans were all sort of pulling for the same guy at the same time. Fast forward a little bit, I mean, just a couple of weeks and boom, the big reveal. He's fine. And he's an asshole. Great moment here for buff Bagwell. Probably one of the highlights of his career, huh? No doubt about it. That was great storytelling. And, and, and by the way, um, that set that we used was a direct ripoff of the, uh, Jay Leno set on tonight, tonight show, show right? Yeah. yeah. That was also part of a storytelling device. Not only was it, Hey, I think I'm going to do a talk show to get heat. That was creatively leading up to a pay-per-view. And the whole idea was that I was pretending I was funnier than Jay Leno. And all I was doing was ripping off his jokes from the Friday night before he would literally send me, uh, Jay would send me his, the, the jokes that he would tell him his monologue. And then I would on Monday night, steal his jokes, which is in the world of comedy, you know, you're a piece of shit if you do that. Yes, no, so no. There, there was, there was, there was a, a, another more tactical reason behind that talk show set than just me wanting to see myself on TV and getting heat. That being said, uh, the story that we just laid out with, with, um, Bagwell, I mean, that's another perfect example of taking, you know, a real life situation that everybody was aware of and everybody knew about and finding a creative way to integrate that into a story. And I think this was, that was great storytelling. You know, I'm not putting myself over. I'm not even sure it was my idea. Uh, I would have been involved with it because it was NWO, but I'm not sure the catalyst for the idea was me. But whoever came up with it, that was a great story. I, I, I got excited hearing about it. We should remind everybody that, uh, you know, they, they could have went two ways with this. I mean, Buff Bagwell could have come back as a, a super over baby face with the crowd pulling for him or done this, which was, in my opinion, much better, much more fun. Two weeks later, we get more of this uh, Bagwell, Scott Steiner shenanigan stuff. The August 3rd Nitro, Scott comes out with a very serious look on his face. He comes in the ring and said he spoke to his mom. He reminded him that he's not better than anyone else. And he's had a chance to think about things and, he said the NWO might be for life, but it's not for him. And he takes the NWO shirt off and calls for Rick Steiner. So of course, Buff Bagwell comes out with uh, a wrestling ear guard on barking like Rick Steiner and, uh, Scott's laughing as Buff comes in the ring on all fours. 
And then Scott gives Buff a treat for rolling over and shaking. And eventually uh, Rick runs out and clears the ring. And then on August 24th, Scott and his hippie doctor come to the ring. Uh, Scott cut a funny promo ripping on Chicago and is calling out Buff. And of course it's, uh, it's Buff dressed up as Rick again. This is uh, some funny. This stuff. is good stuff. This is, is. I'm sitting here laughing my ass off listening to you describe it. I mean, especially the the hippie doctor is Bagwell dressed as a Jamaican. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's just uh, I, I don't even know what we're doing here. But Scott Steiner's uh, he's hurting pretty good here. He's got five compressed discs in his back, and Meltzer would say there's a real question as to how much of a full recovery he'll be able to make and on what timetable. So whatever they're going to be doing match wise, is going to have to be kept short. That is what we see happen at the fall brawl pay-per-view. Uh, Steiner goes to a no contest five and a half minutes. It's, uh, a negative one star rating. Uh, and the reason that this match even goes as long as it is, is Bagwell keeps interfering and eventually he collapses as if he's re-injured his neck. Nobody's buying it. Everybody knows that he's just, uh, playing. Eventually he's put on a stretcher, put into the ambulance. And then of course he jumps out of the ambulance and attacks Rick. So, uh, you know, maybe we jumped the shark there a little bit, but the lead up was really, really good stuff. Um, Let's keep it moving on the September 28th nitro. We would see Scott beat Nick Dinsmore, your old friend, Eugene and Lenny lane in a handicap match. It's kind of cool of you to, I mean, I don't know that I would want my nephew to get the shit beat out of him on nitro by Scott Steiner, but it was pretty cool of you to look out for your nephew, Eugene here. Right. Yeah. In hindsight, I guess it was, you know, I, I, it's funny. I, you know, I ended up working with, with Nick Dinsmore, AKA. A Eugene in WWE years later. And I, I just, I didn't even remember that he had spent time in WCW. I think he was, uh, I think Terry Taylor, you know, again, I learned this after the fact, but I think Terry Taylor was a big fan of Nick Dinsmore's and is the one that worked at men or at least got him a shot, uh, in WCW. But I, I didn't, I didn't remember it until years later. The October 5th nitro, we see Scott doing a pre-taped interview. And he comes out with Bagwell and Judy Bagwell comes out yelling at Marcus, grabs him by the ear and takes him to the back. So that's kind of fun. October 12th. This is where things start to uh, change a little bit for Scott Steiner's new character. He comes to the ring and he says, there isn't a woman in the crowd. I can't lay down vertically and have her look up at me. Totally satisfied. Uh, so this, uh, this new, uh, big booty daddy. Is this, is this something that he comes up with his, on his own and says, Hey guys, what if I started to do this type of thing in my promo or does he just go do it and then come back and ask forgiveness rather than permission? No, we knew going in and we kind of dug it. You know, he, we, he, he talked us through it and he was pretty excited about it. And so were we, I mean, that's a good, it was a great character, certainly pushed the envelope, but it was a great character. So in this promo, he's ripping on buff Bagwell, calling him Marcus. And his mother, Judy Bagwell, calling her an old hag. Of course, Bagwell is not happy about this. And everywhere he goes, he continues to cut promos like this, including the October 19th Nitro, where he's ripping fans and challenging any member of the Vikings in the crowd to meet him in the ring. Uh, And he's telling the crowd, uh, Minnesota sucks and you suck. I mean, he's just 
he's fired up. He's doing whatever he can to get the heat. As we get to Halloween havoc, 98, he does an interview and brings out the giant and then challenges Rick Steiner to a tag match. So we've got Rick Steiner and buff Bagwell taking on Scott Steiner and the giant somehow Rick and Marcus become the WCW tag champs here. And that allows a singles match where Rick finally gets to, uh, extract some revenge over Scott Steiner. Rick gets the win, uh, in a no DQ match in four minutes and 46 seconds. Uh, after the match Bagwell's running around yelling, where's Monica. Of course, we're talking about Monica Lewinsky. Uh, Wade Keller would report in mid November that Vince McMahon of all people is interested in signing Scott Steiner. Um, Wade would write McMahon besides being a mark for muscular physiques grew up watching superstar, Billy Graham. The wrestler Scott is currently emulating Scott's making $315,000 a year and WCW has pegged 500,000 per year for three years is what they'll offer to keep him. There's no indication whether Scott would jump to the WWF without Rick. Although Rick and Eric Bischoff went hunting together last week and they are good friends. The contract figures regarding Rick Steiner are the same as Scott's. Both of their current contracts expire on November 30th. And at least up until a couple of weeks ago, there had not been intense negotiations. So WCW may not be making the Steiners a priority or they assume the WWF wouldn't be interested in them. What do you make of that report? <laughs> I mean, it's speculative. Again, no facts, no real conversations with anybody. The numbers that he quoted are wrong. Um, so that's just, once again, somebody that doesn't have any accurate information speculating. I have, you know, this is the first I've heard that Vince McMahon was interested in Scott Steiner at the time. Um, I didn't hear it back then. Um, it doesn't surprise me that there might have been interest if somebody thought that he was available. He was a great talent. He was getting over like crazy. Um, he had he had really grown as a character and and certainly had more diversity as a character, more depth as a character by this time than he did previously. So I would be shocked if someone wasn't interested in him. But I didn't know that then. I wasn't. No one. No one made that clear to me, and I didn't hear that rumor. Um, the rest of it is just you know it's hard to really speculate on or comment on nothing more than speculation on Wade's part. Nothing against Wade. I like Wade's work right now. You know, I, I check Wade out because um, I do respect, you know, his, his material at this point. Uh, but back then he was doing a lot of the same things that others did, which is just make shit up. Get up. Fill those 10,000 words. On the November <laughs> no, comma, no, no commas, no, 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 no grammar, but a lot of words. On the November 9th, Nitro. Uh, Scott and Buff come to the ring and, uh, Scott says he's the body that can rock your body all night long, ladies. And, uh, Buff says since WCW doesn't want to assign a referee for Scott's matches, they're just going to buy their own referee. Um, we should mention that they start showing up with their own ref after this, which is kind of fun as we build towards the world war three pay-per-view. And the planned Rick versus Scott Steiner match starts with giant Ray Vincent and Brian Adams, all attacking Rick backstage. And, um, eventually Goldberg shows up, gets a huge pop spear, Scott Steiner. And, uh, that's sort of it. We should mention that in early December, Meltzer reports 
that, uh, the guys have re-signed a new three-year deal, uh, right before their WCW deals were expired. They were offered new deals with reports ranging from half a million to $700,000 a piece. And, uh, around this same time, Scott Steiner has to plead guilty to an incident, uh, that I guess made a lot of news back in April where he's charged with aggravated assault and making terroristic threats. It's in the Atlanta journal constitution where I guess there's a traffic cone situation. The lane is closed and he's climbing out of his pickup truck and telling the, uh, the staff there move, or I will run you over. And he gets back in the car and drives over it. Um, what do you remember about this? I remember it happening. It's a bad personal choice on his own time. Wouldn't have done it myself. Pretty risky maneuver. Do remember it, but now didn't have a lot of pressure on me to take any kind of action. So I didn't just was what it was. Uh, we should mention in December, Scott and Bagwell come out here and Bagwell's dressed as Mark McGuire in a Cardinals Jersey. And he has a giant bottle of, uh, I think, I think they're calling Androstein and, uh, Scott's asking Mark or McGuire Bagwell, rather how many homers would you have hit without it? And he said five. What do you remember about this whole, you know, Cardinals piece of business here and the inference to McGuire juicing? Controversy creates cash, brother. (laughs) (laughs) Of course, we know that Scott's going to win the TV title from Conan on the December 28th Nitro. And a week later, this is the finger poke of doom from January 4th, 99. Uh, Of course, Scott is going to be a part of this new NWO. A couple weeks after this, Scott would interrupt the Nitro girls dancing. He asked them if they want to be with a real man. And uh, then he starts offering himself to the women in the crowd. And he says something like after the show, big Papa pump is ready to go. Uh, and he starts looking for his freak of the week. And, uh, he said he saw somebody in a dress with tattoos backstage. So clearly that's Perry Saturn. And, uh, he's going to show him what it's like to wrestle a real man. And when Saturn gets to the ring, Scott said, Saturn is from Texas and only steers and queers come from Texas. And since Saturn isn't a steer. Here we go. Boy, that didn't age well, did it? (laughs) Wow. (laughs) I mean, it's just like, wow, this shit really happened on TV. And and again, you know, go back to the conversation we were having early on in this, in this episode where, you know, you, you can get away with, you know, now you could get away with that in a sitcom, right? Yeah. You could make all kinds of, I mean, even today you could do all kinds of that stuff in a sitcom. But in a wrestling show today or sports entertainment show today, if you were to do that, you would get, and I guess rightfully so, you would get crucified. Yeah. But it's just, but it is, I, I, now hearing it, you know, in the context of, of, of what we were doing on Nitro back then, yeah, we did it. We got away with it. And man, how times have changed. Yeah. It's pretty unbelievable, you know, that that was a real thing. The February 8th, 99 Nitro, Kimberly's walking to a limo and Scott's trying to talk to her. DDP comes from the side of the limo and attacks Scott. And while security breaks it up, Scott jumps in the driver's seat. Kimberly's already there. So he takes off, uh, 
And eventually Scott turns the car around, aims it at DDP. And as he's starting to drive towards her, the passenger side door is open. Kimberly flies out of the door and lands hard on the ground. I guess we're insinuating here that Scott Steiner has pushed her out of a moving car. What do you remember about this? Well, the idea came from the incident with the guy, the highway worker in his cone when Scott said he was going to run him over. We went, hey, we could turn that into kind of a storyline. We're going to make you a dangerous son of a bitch behind the wheel of a vehicle. Ta-da. I'm just kidding. I have no idea where that came from. I have no idea. But, it, you know, it's intense and it's interesting, right? I mean, talk about proper motivation. If there's anything that's going to piss off a baby face, it's throwing his wife out of a moving vehicle. <laughs> <laughs> I love you sometimes. Scott gets a win over DDP at the Super Brawl pay-per-view. He's going to retain his television title. Um, I mean, I guess that's kind of cool. You throw his wife out and then, uh, then beat him up on pay-per-view the February 22nd nitro, a video piece airs of Scott and buff Bagwell's travels on their spring breakout tour bus. They're going to a gym, working out, flirting with women. Uh, they went to a bar to set up a meetup with a girl they met, but it wound up being a drag bar and at another, uh, <laughs> unidentified site Steiner wandered into a Goldberg photo shoot. Um, you know, we get some jaw jacking back and forth and I guess it's reported by Meltzer at some point in early March that you actually banned Scott from doing live interviews and, until he could tone down his language. Is that true? Oh, uh, I don't, you know, I'm not saying it, it's not true because I could certainly see it. Uh, what year was this? What, what, what 99 the time or 99 here? Oh, them for sure. Because then I had Terry Tingle. <laughs> Every time I say her name, it makes me laugh. Terry Tingle from Standards and Practice. If, if that's not like the best stripper name, I don't know what is. There's, it's, it's, it's somebody out there. There's got to be a stripper out there somewhere listening to the show, somewhere in the world that's going to change her stage name, thanks to this show, to Terry Tingle. But uh, but certainly kidding aside by this time in 1990, you know, what we would have been able to get away with in 96, 97, even 98 um, wouldn't have been an issue. But by 1999, we had standards and practices and Terry (laughs) Terry Tingle breathing down our backs. That's even creepier. But, yeah, I'd say it was probably true. I'm just guessing. The uncensored show would see Booker T win the TV title from Scott Steiner in 13 and a half minutes. And, um, I guess we should mention that, uh, ESPN is at the March 8th nitro in Worcester interviewing all their players for the outside the line special. And eventually the subject of steroids come up. Uh, Hogan is interviewed here saying that steroids are still in pro wrestling, but he doesn't use them anymore. And Scott Steiner said, of course he didn't use them either. Uh, Meltzer would also report at the end of March that Steiner was sentenced to 10 days in jail for his incident in the, uh, the little, uh, road cone F two fifty assault and battery charge. Uh, so there you go. He's going to have to serve some time spring stampede. He's working with Booker T again. He's going to use a foreign object and he's going to win the United States heavyweight, uh, tournament. So he dropped the TV title to Booker T, but he winds up beating Booker T, uh, in this tournament. Uh, he would also beat Chris Jericho and Ming. And on the April 12th show, 
DDP is going to pin Scott to retain the world title after Kimberly hits him with a chair. And then DDP gives him a diamond cutter. When this show finally comes out, this outside the line episode finally airs. There are loud chants uh, at some of the television tapings for Scott Steiner uh, for steroids. And supposedly, as a result of this, uh, maybe pressure from ESPN once it airs, they order a drug test in Orlando. What can you, and a second one in Gainesville, uh, what can you tell us about? You know, the pressure from the outside, is that what caused the drug test? Does this come down from Turner or what do you remember? Again, I, I'm not trying to, um, to distance myself from it at all, but I can only guess. I can't tell you with any certainty because whenever there was a drug test, they surprised me as much as they surprised anybody else. I got you. Meaning I, I had no advanced knowledge of it. And, and that was to, to protect the integrity of the test and to protect me. So that if, for example, Diana Myers, who would have been the, the legal representative f- from Turner Legal, who happened to have an office in, inside of the WCW's office, had she come to me and said, hey, Eric, um, don't tell anybody, but there's going to be a drug test coming up next weekend because of all this heat that's coming down from ESPN and all the publicity. So I just want to give you a heads up. That would have compromised the test. And she wouldn't, Turner Legal wouldn't have ever done that. So I can't, it's not that I don't want to tell you or that I don't remember. It's just that I wasn't involved in any of the discussions. I can surmise, much like everybody else, that that was probably the cause of it or the, the catalyst behind it. But I, I, I wasn't, you know, I just wasn't involved in the conversations. Um. He he also has a little bit of trouble, uh, pop up here from a 90, 1997 incident where I guess there was a situation at a bar in Marietta. Uh, and, and it comes out at the end of May that Scott's had another back surgery. So this is the third one and he's not going to be able to wrestle for a while. So he's going to be appearing in, you know, on TV, but not, um, not in his normal gear and certainly not working. And Meltzer would eventually write that his back is in such bad shape that there's talk. He may not be long for the business at this point. He winds up being stripped of the United States title, uh, for being out. Of course, Ric Flair makes that announcement on TV and you, you leave in September of 99. So we'll sort of skim through what happened while you were gone. He's off TV until November 1st, where he does this total baby face interview where he's talking about his back surgery. And he's tried every option to avoid the surgery, but he's in so much pain. He's going to have no choice. He's got three ruptured discs. He's going to join the new NWO at the end of the year with the world champion, Bret Hart, Jeff Jarrett, Scott Hall, and Kevin Nash. They disband around the time you return. And he gets back in the ring on January 3rd on Nitro. It's him and Nash scheduled to face PG 13 in a tag team title match. DDP comes out. PG 13 jumps on both. He laid both members out with diamond cutters. So Nash and Scott come out and beat these dead guys up. Uh, eventually he starts being accompanied to the ring by Madeja. And on February 7th, he cut that very famous promo on Ric Flair. And I think this is the one that most people probably remember where he's getting, uh, I, I think a lot of people 
thought maybe he crossed the line in this era where he's talking about, you know, Steve Austin being on the other channel. And that's the reason everybody is wanting to, you know, watch that instead of this horse shit and Ric Flair ripped off a guy's gimmick and never got his teeth fixed and, you know, blah, 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 just way, way, way over the top. You weren't necessarily involved in the company at this point. Were you watching it all? Did you hear about this promo? I wasn't watching. Well, number one, I wasn't involved at all in the company at this point, and I wasn't really watching. I did hear about it. Um, I don't remember how I heard about it. It's not like somebody called and told me, but um, probably surfing the internet and things like that. Um, I heard about it and went back and saw it. And, you know, I think it, Look, Scott, if you kind of go back and look at his his character trajectory, you know, he he really got over amongst other things by walking up to that edge and sometimes putting a toe or two over. Uh, but I think he, he clearly took a couple steps over. I mean, there's you know, it's so tricky as a as a contemporary heel, right? at least even back then in 99, we're talking about 21 years ago, but still, or 20 years ago. But in 1999, being a contemporary heel, you know, you had to, you, you had to break barriers. You had to do different things. You had to find new ways to get heat that people weren't used to hearing or seeing. And Scott, for a period of about two years leading up to this, this moment, um, was really able to do that. And he found his stride as a character. He was really getting over, I think, probably more than anybody thought he would other than maybe himself and possibly even more than he thought he would get over. But there's a point where you've got to kind of catch yourself and you've, you've got to recognize when you're going too far. You know, it's one thing to put heat on somebody and make fun of somebody, a baby face, and do things that generally get the crowd angry. But when you get to a point where it's so personal and in, in, in hurtful, it's no longer entertaining and storyline driven. It's just flat out mean. Uh, and people don't respond to mean. They, they, that's not heat. That's not money heat. Um, and I think Scott found that point and, and didn't recognize that he was stepping as far off over the line as he was. When you come back, what did you think your plans were going to be for Scott? You come back April, 2000 spring stampede. Of course, you know, there's a, uh, a tournament for all the titles, including the U S title and Steiner beats the wall. And then he beats Mike awesome. And then Steiner beats sting to win the U S title two and three quarter stars. I mean, you clearly had high hopes for him. You're putting him in there for the U S title. Uh, was there ever consideration when you first come back, Hey, maybe we should push him for the, the big belt. There, there wasn't no answer your question. No, but you know, keep in mind that when I came back, it, there was no long-term plans for anybody. When I came back, right. number one, when I came first, I, it's not like I had three months to think about coming back. I, I came back relatively quickly it was kind of out of the blue and there was a lot of catching up to do there was a lot of rehab to do there was a lot of repair to do and all 
all, all of the conversations that I had creatively were about, okay, how do we, how do we get the train back on the track? Not where's the train going to go once it's on track? You know, where do we want the train to end up two years from now or six months from now or a year from now? It was a matter of, holy shit, this train is off the track. How do we get it back on the rails? So most of the conversations were more about short-term kind of solutions and, and ideas as opposed to long-term. Maybe we put the belt on Scott Steiner or Bill Goldberg or anybody else six months or a year from now. So just keep that in mind. In terms of, you know, my plans, I, you know, setting aside what I just said about long-term, I certainly valued, as a character, I valued Scott. He, he would have been any plans that I would have had once we finally got the train on the on the rails and handing in the right direction, Scott definitely would have been a part of them because I, I, I put a pretty high valuation on his character, uh, even with the limitations that he had with, with regard to his back and things like that. The man could still cut a great promo. Granted, you had to reel him in. You had to keep him on the right side of that line or at least keep him on the line. Uh, and he would have a tendency to go too far with things. But that, that's, that, that didn't bother me. That didn't scare me. I've, I've always – you know, believe that, you know, you, you could slow a fast horse down, but you can't make a slow horse fast. And, and Scott was a fast horse. I'd rather have a, you know, a barn full of fast horses that I had to control than a bunch of plow horses. I couldn't get to move out of the barn if it was on fire. And so I pretty high valuation on Scott as a character at that time. The May 2nd thunder, we see Hulk Hogan versus Scott Steiner for the first time. Uh, they end up in the crowd where, uh, Hugh Morris would jump on Steiner and he and Hogan would double team him. That gets us to the slam pay-per-view Scott Steiner is going to retain his U S title. When Hugh Morris comes out to start this match, he says that Hugh Morris was a brain fart from Eric Bischoff and his real name is Hugh G Rection. And he's going to go by captain Rection. Uh, why did you like Hugh Direction more than Hugh Morris? That was a Russo gimmick. That wasn't my gimmick. <laughs> no, and I'm not. I'm not even saying that to be a smart. No, I know. I'm just like saying a... we know we love huge erection. I mean, we're not doing another Bluetooth spot, but come on, that's a natural spot for it right there. No, it's not? a natural spot, and if we were setting up a Bluetooth spot, I would certainly embrace the opportunity <laughs> to do so. But, but in the context of of you know the creative that was going on at this point, it's just. Every time I hear that kind of stuff, it's like, God almighty, it's like <laughs> bathroom toilet humor. It's just so, it's just so stupid. I mean, really, it, it's just, is that all you got? Is that all you got? Huge erection. That's creatively, that's like, you know, mm, whatever. On the May 8th, Nitro, Russo approaches Scott backstage about protecting him from Nash. Scott's with two women. And he tells Russo, leave him alone or he'll rip off his freaking arm. And later in the show, Scott comes out and is demanding that Russo send Tank to the ring. Uh, whatever he's saying here winds up being bleeped. Eventually, Tank tells Doug Dillinger to do what he told him to do. So Scott's sitting still in the ring here and Goldberg's music starts. The crowd and the announcers are really excited for Goldberg. And of course that means tank comes out instead and he's going to mock Goldberg's entrance. But as soon as he gets in the ring, Scott flattens him, takes him down. Uh, and then we get to uh, a street fight in may with tank and Rick Steiner, who, um, Goldberg eventually is going to come make the save. 
Uh, and a few days later, Scott comes out wearing a ton of makeup for a black eye. And he's got a cut mouth and he's going to set up an ambulance match. Uh, things start to sort of go off the rails here in WCW in 2000. Do they not? Oh God, they do. It's just a bad memory. I, I, I try not to, th- you know, it's like if you, you break your leg, you fall off a horse or you fall off a ladder or whatever, you shatter your leg and. You know you did it, but you just try to put it out of your mind because you don't want to relive the pain. That's kind of how I feel about April 2000. They're also doing promos where they're saying that, uh, or Scott is, there's nothing finer than doing a 69er with Scott Steiner. Great American Bash 2000, we see Scott win an asylum match over Rick and uh, Tank Abbott. The asylum match is just as crazy as you remember with the cage and the weapons and all the shenanigans. Uh, the main event of the June 19th nitro is Jarrett beating Scott. Mike awesome is the ref and he's helping Jarrett, but Steiner's kicking out of everything. Eventually Goldberg's here and Ernest Miller's here. Let's talk about the end of June we're almost here to the end of your run, uh, with WCW, but Melzer would write Kimberly wasn't at the show at the story goes. She quit the promotion because Scott Steiner, the previous night called her a nasty name. When Steiner found out she wouldn't do a physical angle involving him. So instead Kimberly did that legendary angle where they went to spray perfume in Hancock's eyes, but sprayed it the wrong direction. And she sold it anyway. Steiner said it thinking she wasn't there, but she heard it and wanted an apology. And you know how that goes. And she quit. Many people are under the assumption. It's a work given DDP and Eric Bischoff's friendship and the company's fascination with trying to fool the internet rather than working the bottom line. Uh, what do you remember about this Kimberly Scott Ooh. Steiner? What happened with Kimberly and Scott? Oh, uh, I wasn't there, so I didn't see it. I certainly heard about it, but I, I think the report was mostly accurate. Um, again, not, not having been there myself, I can't, say it wasn't completely accurate. I don't know. All I know is what I heard. And of course I heard it from DDP, uh, and others. Uh, he wasn't the only one. Um, but yeah, I, I think he was bad mouthing her. She heard it. She went to DDP. It was an issue. She quit. She was miserable anyway. And I don't blame her. Uh, there were a lot of people that were pretty unhappy at the time. And I think she just had it. Let's talk about the, uh, the situation that happened in late June in Lincoln, Nebraska, Meltzer would say that Steiner threw a temper tantrum, uh, an unprofessional fit, uh, regarding being doing a job, doing a job for Mike awesome. Uh, he says he's lied to and is, is reportedly threatening to beat up Terry Taylor, who eventually comes back and says he would sue him if that were to happen. And Steiner of course calls him a series of nasty names for threatening to sue. And Meltzer would say, this is hardly the first time Steiner has blown up a management it's not once or twice he's gone against the script and done nonsensical interviews on TV, blaming Ric Flair for the company's ratings. And, uh, Meltzer saying for whatever reason, WCW refuses to put its foot down. What do you remember about this, uh, incident where he was upset with, with Terry Taylor? And, and do you agree that maybe somebody needed to put their foot down? Oh gosh. You know, I, I'm, 
I was I wasn't there. I didn't see the incident. So again, I'm gonna have to piece it together based on what I heard second, third, fourth hand, and you know, I'm not gonna, <laughs> I, you know, can't go by what anything Meltzer wrote because he wasn't there either. I do believe that Terry Taylor and Meltzer probably had conversations uh, on a regular basis. So I would venture to guess, it's just a guess, not an accusation, but if I had to guess that Meltzer's reporting was based on the ongoing conversations he was probably having with Terry Taylor. Terry was a bit of a stooge. Um, It's not untrue. I mean, Scott did have a really short fuse. Scott did not handle communication as best as he probably should have or as professionally as he should have. It's not a secret. Uh, It never was. But I'm going to defend Scott a little bit here. You know, there was a lot of really bad communication from management, including Terry Taylor and other agents, not just Terry. I'm not picking on Terry. I like Terry, but it is what it is. And you go back and you talk to some of the talent and some of the other agents and some of the other people that were actually involved, you'll find few people that will, you know, suggest that, you know, agents, including Terry, were always straightforward and didn't often fade the heat or weren't often evasive whenever challenged by talent. And I don't mean physically challenged. I mean, why are we doing that? You know, what, what, where's this storyline going? Am I off this weekend or am I not off? I mean, any number of issues where management, including agents at that time, um, were, should have been really direct and forthcoming and honest with talent and oftentimes weren't. That made it, you know, that, that created uh, an environment where you would have situations like this. Now, add to that environment, a guy with historically a pretty short fuse, <laughs> like Scott Steiner, and it's inevitable that you're going to have situations like this come up. Should management have put, including me, by the way, should I, should I have had a more professional environment? Absolutely. There's no excuse for that. You can't have any kind of a working environment where you had this kind of volatility and, and potential for disaster to happen. It's just not healthy. There's no way you can defend it or justify it. Um, so, yeah, management, including me, should have been uh, more disciplined about having a more disciplined environment backstage and not allowing things to get out of hand, not only from the talent's point of view, but from management's point of view. Including agents, you know, going, you know, looking back now, you know, it's like people often ask me, well, what would you have done differently? There's a million things that you would like to go back and do differently, but having agents included, having agents handle their shit a lot more responsibly and professionally uh, and honestly with talent would have gone a long way to having a better environment backstage. So it, I'm long-winded way of saying it worked both ways. Yes, there were talent who behaved poorly and unprofessionally, and it wasn't helped by the fact that so were agents handled their shit pretty unprofessionally uh, at times. We should mention the uh, infamous Bash of the Beach pay-per-view. It was your last show with WCW. Mike Awesome would get a win over Scott Steiner by DQ in nine minutes and 11 seconds. But Meltzer dug the match. It's uh, three and a quarter stars. Um, we should also mention that on the July 31st 
uh, match on Nitro. Scott would beat Kevin Nash in a straight jacket match. And then they started to do matches where shit was on poles in August. And well, it's just WCW in 2000. You're not there. For no, those. that was, that was Vince Russo in 2000. No, no, no. I'm just saying you're not there. <laughs> I'm, I'm giving you a pass on that. No, no, no. I'm, I'm not, I'm not even, not even def- being defensive. I'm just pointing out to the audience who's listening. That was all Vince Russo. Vince Russo had the pencil to himself and there you go. Mayhem is the big pay-per-view in November. And this is where we see Steiner finally win, uh, the world title. Uh, he beats Booker T in 13 minutes and 10 seconds in a cage match with a straight jacket against two stars. It's probably a pretty cool deal that he finally, uh, gets the spot and he's the world champion. Um, the next night on nitro, he's cutting a, a heck of a promo. And, um, he said, if it's Steve Austin, he'll kick his ass just like he did when he was in WCW and the rock doesn't have the guts to show up. And he imitates his, uh, la, 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 la tongue roll and what I'm cooking. And well, it's just Scott Steiner being Scott Steiner, baby. Tons of shenanigans. His, uh, Starcade title defense against Sid vicious is victorious. Uh, there's more chaos on the December 18th nitro and you weren't there for this, but I'm going to bring it up because I know you have heard all about it. This is when DDP and Scott Steiner got into it. Uh, apparently Scott does what Scott does and, and said some things in an interview that maybe he shouldn't have. He talked about how Paige didn't have the balls to fight him and he needs a sex change operation. And as soon as he says that Paige gets up in front of everybody and says enough's enough. And as soon as Steiner comes through the curtain, they're scrapping and yeah. What do you remember about this DDP Scott Steiner fight backstage? Well, again, I wasn't there. So I, you know, I, I only heard about it after, after the fact and, you know, Paige is not a fighter, you know, I mean, that's not his, it's not his go-to. He's not that guy. Um, he's a talker, and and I and I, I mean that as a compliment. He'd rather talk out a problem, if he's got one with you. He'd rather sit down and just clear the air and and look you in the eye and tell you how he feels or let you tell him how you feel and just work it out. That's his go-to. Um, unfortunately, you know, based on the, everything that you just read and what I had heard previously, he just had it. And I was I was surprised, quite honestly, when I heard about it. I was because I do know Paige, and I do know that he's not a fighter. And let's face it, it's Scott Steiner. That's not necessarily even if you have a tendency to want to knock someone out or get into it with somebody. That's not the guy you probably would want to start out with. Um, so I was I was surprised, but I, you know, I got to hand it to Paige. You know, he, he what else could he have done at that point? I mean, Scott took it so far. That had he, had Page not stood up for himself, I don't think he would have ever been able to live it down or live with himself. And you know, it's unfortunate. It's unfortunate, but you know, nothing but respect for Page for 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 stepping up and and defending himself as a man and his wife and 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 it's just, again, it's unfortunate. You know, I'll go back to what I said earlier. It should have never happened. Scott should have never done it. The environment that would allow to, 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 you know, give Scott the impression that he was able to do it should have never, should have never existed. Um, but it did and everybody got through it. Everybody lived and 
good news is that, you know, it's over and it's done. Let me ask, you know, the, it's written in the observer that, um, you were asked by Brad Siegel to fly in and try to calm everybody down. Was that the way that went down? Uh, yeah. Yeah. I think at the time I had, I, uh, who was here? Johnny Ace was here. I had hired Johnny Ace. Uh, originally I hired him to, to kind of handle, uh, finishes and he had kind of moved into the talent management, uh, role. And I did, I, I, I did sit down and, and work with Scott cause I did, you know, there were times I had a, at one point I had a relationship with Scott where, because I was always honest with him, you know, and that's one of the reasons why at that point, at least we, we had a pretty good working relationship so that if there were issues like this, it could at least have a civil, what, at least it would start out as a civil conversation and, and could manage it. Um, so yeah, that, it did happen. It's fascinating to me that even though you're home, they need you to come pat everybody on the head and put Humpty Dumpty back together again. Of course, we know Steiner's involved in that match where Sid breaks his leg and lots of other shenanigans that Eric wasn't really there for. But the last Nitro is what most people remember most about that Nitro besides Flair and Sting and besides the big angle at the end. Booker T beats Scott Steiner to recapture the world title. So, you know, from November to March, Steiner is your, your champ. Um, and that's the end of WCW. What, what, what can you tell us about Scott Steiner and his legacy in WCW? What do you think it will be? Oh, I, I think probably his legacy, the most, the most memorable, you know, this is just me. So, which is obviously not the case. But I think some of his promos, you know, in, in, in 97, 98, early 99, where he really kind of found his stride. Uh, and, and even today, you know, people still refer back to some of those promos. They're almost like cult favorites. Um, for me, th- that's, that's a highlight, I think, of his career in WCW. At, but again, like I said, that's just me. That's my taste. Watching him transition, you know, out of that pretty dominant tag team position that he had for so long. He was certainly him and Rick both were extremely well, you know, respected, you know, in the tag team category. And to be able to transition out, because that's not always easy to do. You know, you pointed it out, you know, with the Rockers. It's hard sometimes, you know, when you've been such a dominant and, and exposed tag team to transition into the singles category and Scott did it almost flawlessly and actually probably reached greater success as a singles competitor than he did as a tag team competitor. And that says a lot because they were such at a, such a high level as a tag team. So I, th- that era, 97, 98, early 99 to me was, I think probably will one of the things that will define Scott's legacy long-term. If you had, uh, been successful in your quest to take over WCW and purchase WCW in 2001, what do you think the plans would have been for Scott Steiner? I, you know, I don't know. I can't, you know, I can't imagine sitting here, you know, recording this right now. 
I, I'll go back to what I said earlier, though. He certainly would have been high on my list of people to work with because I had I put a big valuation on his character. I, you know, yes, he was difficult to manage. Yes, he could be problematic sometimes. Yes, his communication was often challenging. Uh, I mean, backstage dealing with others because he he just had a a short fuse and he didn't tolerate bullshit. You know, and there's a lot of bullshit that goes on backstage. You know, with talent and with agents and producers and directors and all kinds of things. There's always some kind of communication issue. And oftentimes, as I said, not to keep beating up on agents, but, you know, that, that can be, you know, you've got to be honest with a guy like Scott, you, you've got to, you've got to be really disciplined about making sure that what you say to him can't be misinterpreted as dishonest because that was, that was a trigger point for him. He was you know, he he had probably an oversensitive bullshit meter, sometimes way overly sensitive, so that even something that wasn't said correctly, he would interpret, you know, absolutely as wrong as it could possibly be interpreted, and that would create issues. But beyond those challenges, he was a great talent, you know, and he had a tremendous amount of potential. And I, you know, I, I, I think a lot of it, some of it, perhaps was left on the table because of the way things ended, you know, in WCW and, and, you know, Scott, you know, and, and did, did end up going back to WWE and I worked with him for a period of time while, you know, in WWE, but he didn't have the latitude to really grow that character there as he did. There was a moment in time where he was, he had the ability to kind of almost write his own material and he took advantage of that and did a very good job with it. 97, 98, early 1999. But, you know, the wheels kind of fell off. And then with his run in WWE, he didn't really have that latitude. And, you know, it was memorable, I guess. Uh, but I think the peak of his career was, like I said, 97, 98, early 99, WCW. Well, if you like that era, you're going to love what we got coming for you next week. We're going to sit down and do a watch along for Nitro number 100. Uh, this is the famous show from August 4th, 1997. And I'm pretty excited about it because we're going to be watching it on August 5th. Uh, so on the 22 year anniversary, this is when Luger would beat Hulk Hogan for the world title. The crowd goes bananas and is a real moment in nitro history. Uh, so look forward to that on August 5th on August 12th, we're going to cover road wild 1999, which is actually Eric's last pay-per-view in charge before he takes a little break in September of 99. Uh, and then we'll revisit clash of the champions 35. This is the very last one. Uh, the very last clash of the champions that WCW would put on. It went down in Nashville, Tennessee on August 21st. Uh, your main event is Scott Hall and Randy Savage taking on diamond Dallas page and Lex Luger, but the undercard is outstanding. Uh, Steve McMichael and Jeff Jarrett, Raven and Stevie Richards, Alex Wright and Ultimo dragon, Chris Jericho and Eddie Guerrero. Uh, Kurt is going to team with Ric Flair to take on Conan at six. And we've got an eight man tag match with Luchador galore. Uh, it's a, it's a fun show. And then on August 26th, we're going to revisit one of the all time greats, Arn Anderson. And we're covering that one because it'll be near the anniversary of the infamous my spot promo. I think we've got a cool little lineup of shows. Any of those really stick out to you that you're looking forward to doing? I bet it's next week, huh? The yeah, I know it is next week. You know, I, I, I love those kind of seminal moments in history and, and revisiting them. So, I mean, it all sounds fun. I'm looking forward to doing all of them, but I, I think next week is going to be the most fun. I'm looking forward to it. 
So set your calendars, boys and girls. Uh, we're going to be visiting nitro number 100 next week. And we're going to do a watch along on the WWE network. Uh, in the meantime, we'd love to hear from you. We are at 83 weeks on social media. He is at E Bischoff. I am at Hey, Hey, it's Conrad. And we are out of time. We'll see you next week right here on 83 weeks with Eric Bischoff. John brings his skewed sense of humor. Jeff brings tips to cut strokes off your next round. Together, it's those weekend golf guys. They'll pay a lot of money to PXG and Titleist and Callaway and on and on and on. Right? How many yards do you think you're going to pick up with that extra driver? I think I can get an extra 5 to 10. What if I give you 15 to 20? <laughs> you pay me more. Jeff Smith right? teaches on the sliding scale. <laughs> those weekend golf guys, the podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B-L-E-A-V on YouTube or wherever you listen.